Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning and we celebrate your faithfulness. The fact that, Heavenly Father, before we even discovered our problems and our needs, you were already creating solutions and you had the wheels of eternity already in motion. The greatest of our need, O oh God, was for that of salvation. Before we were even knew ourselves to be sinners, the lamb had been slain before the foundation of the world. Thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness. We need it this morning, oh God, um, just in terms of handing our hearts over to you with all the hustle and bustle of everyday life. Um, whether our Sunday is a day of natural rest for us or we view it as a time where we're just getting geared up to go back into the marketplace or back into the home or wherever it is that we do the grind of life. Heavenly Father, we come now asking for your help. We need your help this morning, oh God, to hear your word with fresh ears and to see, Lord God, with fresh eyes so that we can live lives that are fully dedicated to you, Lord God, today and, and even moving forward. So um, glorify yourself in this time, oh God, in the edification of your people. Um, I need your help specifically as your, as your teacher. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, greetings, Gospel Hope. It is uh, wonderful to, uh, to see your faces again. Also, just uh, in addition to our first-time guests, I also want to greet uh, and just say hello and good morning to our friends from Camp Grace. Um, I know that there are some folks here uh, from there who have been working with our um, Gospel Hope kids and just kind of helping us to disciple and, and do some things there with our young ones. And so uh, we praise God for you and just your attendance uh, this morning as well. And, uh, and as John already said, we are entering into a brand new series this morning, a series entitled Messy. Yeah, Messy. How about that, huh? Um, and so uh, Messy, I couldn't think of a more appropriate um, title for a walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. And just to kind of give you a little bit about them, the 1 Corinthian church or the church at Corinth, and this is the first letter to them, uh, was established during one of Paul's missionary journeys. And you need to know something about the city of Corinth. Quite, quite interesting. If I had to give it a modern day uh, contemporary uh, cultural equivalent, I would say in terms of debauchery, a lot like Vegas. People actually went on vacation to Corinth and to, to be more Corinthian. It was, a, it was kind of a catchphrase. They had uh, not just legalized prostitution, but there was a local temple with over a thousand prostitutes. And so prostitution was very much a part of the, the culture, nothing ashamed about it. It was not just legal, it was pretty standard and usual and casual. Many people traveled there for that, for that means and for that business and to do other things that were uh, untoward. And uh, in addition to uh, to that. Uh, Corinth also just had, uh, it was just a major metropolis, kind of reminds you in terms of just people passing through it, a lot like in Atlanta, a place of many divergent cultures, maybe more like a New York City. So these aren't uh, slams on anybody's cities. They're just kind of descriptors to help you kind of really get in the mindset to appreciate what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. And uh, because of all of those dynamic cultural influences, when the gospel began to take hold uh, of the folks at Corinth, I mean, they were being saved from uh, many of those lifestyles with just, just with a full, you know, roulette wheel of, 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 of fleshly things to choose from. And then the gospel comes here and gets traction and people come to know him. Well, guess what? Uh, is there anybody else in here who has gotten saved? And you know that while certain dynamics in your life change overnight, there are many other things part of your, your worldly existence that you kind of brought with you. And the same thing happened in Corinth where there's all manner of division 
vision and other things that they have kind of brought with them from their worldly mentality. And the Apostle Paul gets word of it and uh, decides to send a letter with a delegation of three others to say, hey, we got to get this fixed. This isn't the life of the gospel. This isn't what those who say they follow Christ look like. And one of the first problems that he wants to address is the issue of division. Um, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been involved in a conversation like this? Um, you meet someone and they say, oh, where are you from? And you say, well, I'm from Atlanta. And they say, oh, were you born there or did you move there? Right? And you kind of see that snarky eyebrow coming up. And then that person will remind you that they are a Georgia peach born here. Or they'll remind you that they are a Grady baby, like born in the thick of it. Right? 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 You, you've been in that conversation, right? And then all of a sudden, regardless of how long you've been here, you start to feel kind of like less than an Atlantan, you know? You ever felt that? How, what about this conversation? Have you ever been involved with someone who is, oh, let's just say, oh, 48, 49 years old? They've been living in Atlanta for 45 years, and when you ask them where they're from, they still refer to themselves as a New Yorker, even though they left when they were four? <laughs> Have you met that person? Yep, yep, yep. And it just, there's just this constant one-upsmanship in these relationships about where you're from and, and all this other kind of stuff. What about this one? Let's get gritty for a minute. Um, what about the person, maybe they are, they on the outside, they look black or they look white, but they want to quickly remind you that they are not just regular black or regular white, that their grandfather on their mother's side is 100% Cherokee, uh, something like that. Therefore, they're 25%. Have you, have, you, have, you, have you felt any of this? Have you been in these conversations? I mean, nobody wants to just be regular. There's always got to be something about our identity that gives us this additional distinction, right? Oh, let's go a little bit deeper. What about this one? Oh, my ancestors were never slaves, or my ancestors never owned any slaves, right? There, there is just all of these constant, these constant conquests to gain additional degrees of authenticity through our identity. And it, 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 is, it is human to try to hook our identity in something that is bigger than us or that is bigger. It is just human, all right? It is human to want to say that, that, that I am a little bit more than what you see, that there's more than meets the eye based on my connectivity to something or someone that is larger than I am. And this is just very much of how we are wired. And because of that, it creates divisions in many cases, and it did so within the Corinthian church. So when we talk about the divisions within the Corinthian church, uh, you're going to read through a passage, but what you'll find is that people were creating, not community groups, I call them community coups. They were, they were starting to do group in ways that were divisive, not complementary. Some people were saying, well, I am of Paul. Others were saying, I am of Apollos. Some were saying, I'm of, you know, Sothenus, and some would say, I'm of Cephas, or some would say that I'm of Christ. And so people were beginning to anchor the authenticity of their Christian identity in someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. As if to say, because Paul may have uh, been the one who introduced me to Christ, or because Cephas may have been the one who baptized me in my household, that the kind of Christianity that we are living out is more authentic than the one that you're living out. We feel that even today, right? Even within the context of not just race, but also denominations, we feel this, this thing of because I go to this church or because we do this or do that, we are somehow a more authentic version. We are indeed the real deal. And it produces division rather than community. 
And distinctions are real. Distinctions are real. The Lord is not calling us into the kind of the American experiment where we say we're a melting pot and we just lose all of our distinctions. That's not what the gospel calls us to. But the distinctions are real. They have real value. But the value isn't that we would vaunt ourselves against one another and create cliques. But it will become a part of the richness of the great community that God is creating in Christ. And so this morning, I want to challenge us with the following kind of thought idea or tattoo, which is this. The church must challenge the norm by choosing to use redeemed wisdom in our relationships. We come into this world before we came to know Jesus Christ with somewhat of a playbook on how to do relationships, where we learned it from our families or whether we just learned it because we had to navigate certain environments in school, wherever we got it from, we already have an intrinsic playbook on how we believe relationships are supposed to go. And so the gospel has to come in and even redeem that basic operating rhythm on how we believe relationships are supposed to be conducted. Because without the redemptive work of God, our relationships naturally tend or trend toward cliques. Let's just be honest. If you walk into a room filled with people who look radically different, speak different accents or languages, even if they look the same, if they talk differently from you, do you not feel a certain sense of discomfort? But if you walk in and all over those, the people's t-shirts and all over their lives and the way that they operate, you see immediate points of connectivity like they're wearing the same t-shirt from a school you went to or they wear their hair just like you do or they laugh at the same stuff you find funny. You feel an automatic sense of connectivity, don't you? And so it is just very much human to, to want to do community and to connect with people who look exactly like us. And so there is some degree of division that is almost intrinsic to what it means to be human because we will drift toward people who look like and act like and think like us. And only the power of the gospel can get us to share that same kind of harmony, unity, and community with people who are radically different from us. Well, what are the terms and conditions that we should do that under or that we can possibly do that under? And so I believe that the Bible has for us, today's message has four principal ideas that I want to drive home that make up this wisdom that we should lean into to, to work out our, our relationships in a redeemed way. And I'm going to give them all four of them to you up front. I believe you'll find them here on the screen. The first one is this, that we must keep Christ as the focus. I'm going to unpack them in detail throughout the message. Number two, the gospel must be the dunamis. I'm going to explain that. It's a Greek term. Don't get tripped up. Um, the Lord's glory as the primary purpose. And number four, the Holy Spirit as the compass. Again, the four ideas that I believe represent this body of wisdom coming from 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 is that we must have Christ as the focus, the gospel as the dunamis, the Lord's glory as the purpose, and the Holy Ghost as our compass. Now, exactly how does that work out into a wisdom that allows us to do relationship in a redeemed way that tears down the natural tendency to be divided? Here's how. When we look at uh, Paul's words here in uh, 1 Corinthians, starting with chapter 10, he really begins to define the problem for us really quickly. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. 
but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's house that there are some quarrels among you, my brothers. And what I mean is to say that some of you say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Apollo, some say I'm of Cephas, some say I'm of Christ. And then he says rhetorically, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that none of you may say uh, that you were baptized in my name. I did not baptize, uh, uh, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For I did not, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Paul, first and foremost, reminds us very simply that the, the issue when there's divisions is that Christ has ceased to be the focus, but someone else is. And so we must maintain Christ as the focus. Well, why must we maintain Christ as a focus? Verses one through three give us some clues. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle in Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And so uh, Paul begins to show how Christ is the focus in this way. He is the one that is crucified for us, the one into whom we are, whose name we are baptized in, and he is also the one who sanctifies us. Now, who, who is crucified for us is a crucial statement in, in our faith. Whose name we're baptized in is a crucial understanding in our faith. And also, who has sanctified us and for what have we been sanctified is crucial because they answer three critical human questions. Value, identity, and purpose. See, my value is declared at the cross because in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God is saying from heaven, that's how much human beings cost. So my value is automatically established in the cross. I want you to think about the great conflicts that exist between those who believe that they might be more authentically Christian than the other. I want you to think about all of the great isms in our culture. Classism, value is what? Based on what I do for a living. Racism, value is based on what? How I look, my DNA, right? Uh, 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 misogynism, value is based in what? In my gender. You understand? All of the great isms of our society are based on a misappropriation of human value, right? Nationalism, my value comes from what? Our GDP or our constitution or the beauty of our democracy. But the gospel raises our sights up, up, up and above all of those criteria and says human value is declared by how much a human being costs and he costs the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the crucifixion of Christ, Christ being the focus, is crucial to cutting down on divisions. Because once I really soak in that, and every other identifier becomes subordinate to the fact that Jesus Christ died for me, I cease to find any legitimate reason to value myself above anyone else. But not only that, but also baptism is crucial. We, you've seen baptisms happen here in the waters and from the stage, and we've talked about it at infinitum from the book. But if you really understand the beauty of baptism, it is about who we are identified with. Baptism causes us to recognize that regardless of how I got saved, what I got saved from, and how long I've been saved, we all have a shared identity in Christ. We have been baptized in the name and in the authority of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And because of that shared baptism, 
baptism, not only is our value declared at the cross, but then our shared identity is declared in the baptism. And when we really soak in, no pun intended, the doctrine of baptism, we walk away with a refined perspective on my identity. But then also there's sanctification. Sanctification speaks to human purpose because we have all been sanctified from the world to God for his work. All of us, regardless of region, regardless of land, regardless of sin, regardless of the circumstances from which you were sanctified, we are all sanctified to the same Savior for the same incredible kingdom-building work. And so the, the, the whole of human existence is built around the reinvention and rediscovery. When, you, when we live an unredeemed life, the whole life is captured in trying to discover value, identity, and purpose in sources other than the Christ, his identity, and the work for which we have been sanctified. And so once we make Christ the focus, our lives vibrate, echo, and scream with new senses of value, identity, and purpose. And so when we see those who are different from us, it's not a value comparison, but it is a value appreciation because we begin to look at how God redeemed him. Wow, that's awesome. Think about what happens when colleagues people who've never met one another, but maybe we're in the same fraternity or that went to the same college, but eons and generations apart. When they see each other, they don't vaunt themselves as being better than one another. They want to get closer. Well, what year did you go there? Oh yeah, you remember professor such and such. You remember doing this? Oh, you remember that? Oh, when did you cross over? Oh, you remember this? Oh, you remember that? Two people who have the same value identifiers, they begin to relish in the shared value that they have through this shared institution or this shared experience. They don't compare experiences to try to say, well, I'm better than you because I came out in 86. And so when Christ is the focus, it's one of the first points of wisdom that helps us to cut down on division in the church and manage our relationships in ways that are godly. I'll put it this way in a very concise way. When Christ is the focus, my identity becomes actually a missional footprint rather than a socioeconomic footnote. Let me explain. The fact that I am a middle-aged, middle-class, African-American male born in the Southeast and having lived in peeping all the other places that I have lived right now in the 21st century is a part of my missional footprint. In other words, there are people and things and places and rooms that I have access to and stuff that I can do and say that resonates differently for the kingdom and gives me certain kinds of connectivity in places that others may feel strained to go or less comfortable to go. And the same thing applies to you. My unique identifiers are part of my missional footprint. There's just some stuff I can do and say because I'm black and ain't nobody going to get mad. White people, come on now. You know what I'm talking about. Like if I bust up in a conversation, I'd be like, oh yeah, black folks, people of color. Ain't nobody going to check me on what phrase we're using this week. You go in there and do that. They'll be like, I don't know if you can say that yet. <laughs> Does it not happen? White fam? <laughs> Does it not happen? You won't get that with me. I give you carte blanche on phrases, right? Because I understand that we have shared value and therefore we have shared purpose and identity. But my ethnicity and all those other pieces, again, they're not socioeconomic footnotes. I don't want to be treated differently because of what I used to do or what I currently do, but doesn't it happen to us? 
When the Lord's not redeeming, when, when, when my socioeconomic demographics and identifiers are not being redeemed, what do we do? We, we oh, you really do this? I mean, come on, let's, let's just talk about it for a minute. Um, 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 I mean, have you ever gone to your spouse's Christmas party and everybody find themselves in that little circle with a half, half of a cup and all of a sudden that conversation breaks out about what you do for a living, right? And then it's almost like my turn. I'm like, all right, what, how, how can I make my job title as sexy as possible, Right? Right, because these little identifiers, right? You know what I'm talking about. And then it gets around to me and it's like, so what do you do? Well, I'm in the business of saving lives. Oh, you're a physician? Well, you know, we got a great physician on the team. <laughs> you're a fireman? Oh, well, I, I, I'm into fire pre prevention. Yeah, I do some of that. Man, we want to be as awesome as possible through some of the footnotes, the details of our lives. Because what? We have, been just, we have just been baptized in this idea that the things that I do and that that stuff is a part of me and that's who I am. But no, it's just my missional footprint. It's not my value statement. Christ must be the focus or else we all will find ourselves duped undeniably and to living lives of division, and to, and to walk in cliques, and to avoid the pain of division, we just group with other people who are just like us. Therefore, we don't have to have conflicts. We don't have to feel bad, because we can constantly talk about how our group is this, and the other group is not that. Man, this thing even happens between small, medium, and large-sized churches. The large church says that the small one is, is fledgling and don't have their act together. The small one says that the large one is not faithful. The middle one says that the other two are compromised. Whenever our identifiers and our uniquenesses are not being redeemed, they always become the fruit and the food of further divisiveness and value, identity, and purpose mismanagement. The second point comes to us from verses 18 through 25. Follow Paul's words here. It says in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise, rhetorical? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, the wisdom, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of that which we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand a sign, the Greeks demand wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both among Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What's the point? Is that in we, as we do relationships together, not only must we maintain Christ as a focus, but my second point is this, and you've seen it already, that the gospel must be the dunamis. Now, dunamis is a Greek word for power. It's one of the Greek words for power. And dunamis means it simply is the power to get things done. Did you notice when we were reading the passage how the Lord talks about these great role reversals? The stuff that the, the, the world considers to be wise, he makes it folly. The stuff that they thought was to be folly, he saves lives through it. The, the weakness of God is stronger than men, and the foolishness of God is wiser than men. That is the power of the gospel, the great role reversals. One of the great role reversals that we see, Jesus even echoed it. Oh, whoever shall be first in the kingdom will be last, and whoever will be last will be first, right? Jesus, who he made it of no reputation, but even though it was, it was not Robert for him to be equal to God, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, right? 
The one that everybody should have been serving, he came to serve. So the gospel has this incredible power to come in and turn things on its head. Our relationships have to be infused with gospel dunamis, which is this unique kind of power. It's where we get our word dynamite. Like, like the gospel just comes in and it just blows up the set. Here's how this would look in a relationship that has gotten messy. Do you feel like this person should apologize to you? Blow that up. Do you feel like that person should make the first move toward reconciliation? Let the gospel blow that out the water. Do you feel like you are owed forgiveness in how this thing shook out? Blow that up. Let the gospel blow that up. Do you feel like uh, uh, because that person said something that they knew was the one button they should never push, you have decided to create distance and give a stiff arm to them until they come to their senses and recognize who you really are? Let the gospel blow that up. That's the only way that, that divisions get dealt with. It's the only way the gospel has to come in and blow that up. The gospel has to come in and take what we consider to be the normal way relationships are supposed to work for me and completely blow that up. This is the power of the gospel. I want you to consider all the things that, that, that we, we use in this life to seemingly gain acceptance. Not only do we need to blow this stuff up, but, 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 but what are we doing to work for acceptance? Notice all the features that Paul pointed out. Wisdom, wealth, work ethic, willpower. All these different things are the things that the world leans on to gain momentum and to guarantee its success and to, to, to make itself seem like it ought to be. And the Bible says, the gospel says, God purposely and intentionally takes all those things and robs them of their power so that people can see their great need for him. How many of you are, are, are in the know now, finally, a few weeks later, a month later almost, folks are actually getting indictments and, and sentences on the whole Varsity Blue scandal, the whole college acceptance scandal, right? So you got people who in their wisdom and in their wealth and in their work ethic recognize that they didn't have, they were missing something to get the level of acceptance that they need, and therefore they decide to write checks and Photoshop their kids' faces onto post playing water polo to try to get into esteemed colleges because that's where they place value. But, but, but look at what was happening. They reached into whatever bag they had to try to substitute what they considered to be a lack of qualifications. Well, the beauty of the gospel is it renders everybody unqualified for acceptance to God. There is nothing that you bring, your nobility, your wisdom, where you were born, how you were born, how long you lived there, your bank account, none of it matters. Your brilliance, God renders all those things. So God is not anti-intellectual. When you hear him say that he's making these things folly and he's, under, and he's undermining worldly wisdom, it's not because God doesn't want believers to think, but he doesn't want believers to think that they have anything they bring to the table that qualifies them for salvation. And so the gospel blows that up. This is the power of the gospel. It, I can say it this way. The gospel is designed to create an awareness that God's acceptance is not based on our prowess. But what does this have to do with relationships? So in our relationships with one another, we should live by the same premise. Follow me carefully. The gospel steps into our lives. Anybody that has really believed the gospel recognize that there was nothing you brought to the table that qualified you for God's love, acceptance, and relationship. Therefore, if I plug that same power into my relationships, then I don't place any pre-qualifiers on other people to know my best. 
I can still show people my best even when they might be bringing to me their worst. Yeah, no? Okay, all right, good. <laughs> Number one, the Christ must be the focus. The second piece of wisdom I believe the scriptures give to us is that the gospel must be the newness. This is, in other words, the gospel has a specific, credible, real, actual, practical power to reverse the way that we think and do relationships, and we need it at the center. We need it at the center. This isn't just about pursuing harmony and unity and avoiding arguments. This is about really reshaping how I value the other person and how I approach the other person and what I require of other people in order to do real relationship with them. And we're doing it not just because God told us to, but because that's how he related to us. That's the beauty of it. We have been the foremost beneficiaries of this kind of relationship building. Verses 26 through 31 in chapter 1 say this. For when I consider your calling, for you consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards, not many of you were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring the things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence. And because of him, you are in Christ, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. For what reason? So that, as it is written... Let no one boast in the presence of the Lord. So again, the Lord is not speaking against the intelligent or against the rich or against the noble born. He's not saying throw those things in the garbage. He's just saying that these things will never be a criteria upon which you can stand before God and boast. In other words, if my children's children's children should decide to follow or should, 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 should come to know Christ, not a single one of them will be able to stand before the almighty God and say, I deserve to be here because my great-great-great-great-grandfather helped plant gospel hope. There will be no qualifications outside of the qualifications given to us by God that we'll be able to bring to the table. And this is so, so no one should boast. I won't be able to stand before God and say, well, I grew up in the Bible Belt, therefore I should automatically get in because my upbringing in, in, in my, the mobile above my head in my crib was of Noah's Ark, therefore I know I got to get in. No one will have reason to boast. The greatest missionaries of all time will have no reason, no, no, no opportunity to boast because Jesus Christ will have been our wisdom and our righteousness. I remember, if you remember, uh, uh, um, just last Sunday, a few of us were wearing suits. You remember that? Yeah, we was out here with them jackets and slacks and pocket squares and the ties and whatever, and we were walking differently, you know, uh, greeting guests. You remember that, right? And if you had overheard a few of the conversations, you know, you would have heard people like, oh, man, where you get that? Oh, that must be tailored right there. That's sharp. You know, you know we, were, we were checking each other out, and we were, we, were, we were loving one another's outfits. But that's what we were loving, one another's outfits. I want you to hear me clearly in this. What we wear, what we put on is we put on the Lord's wisdom. We put on the Lord's righteousness. We put on Christ. So when we see one another in glowing and wonderful ways, what we ought to be complimenting or what we are complimenting is how God is working through and what Christ looks like on that person. 
Notice that if I come in here in a rocking, crazy nice suit, what you see and what you're impressed with is not me, but the man who made the suit. Therefore, if we are told to put on Christ, we ought to be quick to compliment what Christ's wisdom and righteousness looks like when we see one another wear it. This is one of the greatest ways to tear down divisions. Why? Because what creates divisions within the body and even outside the body? When someone sees us doing something well and begins to assign to us, oh man, he thinks he's something. Oh man, she thinks she's good because she sings. Oh, he thinks he's better than me because, you know, his role in the body of Christ has him up on the stage. Oh, he, he or she thinks he's better because they, because they uh, you know, I, I work in kids ministry and this person is on the team that teaches the treasure principle on Sunday mornings. But all of those things are just stuff that we are wearing because of what, how Christ has called us. And therefore, not only must Christ remain the focus and the gospel remain the dunamis, but the Lord's glory must remain the overwhelming purpose. When we glorify God, if I could condense it this way, when we glorify the Lord as our primary focus by modeling the Christ, the attributes, we, we model Christ that we, in, in the attributes that are best suited for the moment. In other words, we're not all wearing suits today. We don't always wear suits. Uh, but, but there are many times when the Lord will ask us not to become chameleons, but in the wisdom of God, there are various moments when, man, you know what? I need to put on love. I need to put on accountability. I need to put on affection. I need to put on some acceptance. I need to put on some comfort. I need to put on a person who can identify with someone who has been hurt, who has been divorced, who's recently lost a loved one. I need to put on whatever I need to in order to effectively connect with someone who might be brand new to this country and they feel like not only are they in a foreign land, but they feel like the lowest of the low and the worst of the worst. We, in Christ, get to put on whatever outfit and attribute of Christ-likeness best suits the moment. And that's how we kill divisions and cut down on relationships and cliques being developed, not only in the church, but also in our communities. We have to be prepared to put on the right attributes. I mean, it was, I mean, don't you find it fascinating that the same Jesus that would let John lean up against his breast at the, at the, you know, at the last supper, bust up into the temple and knocking over people's tables and messing up, you know, their science projects or whatever, their, their cages of birds. That's the same Jesus. I mean, the same Jesus who in the book of Revelation is coming to town on a white horse with a tattoo on his thigh that says, King of kings and Lord of lords, what a sword coming out of his mouth. That same Jesus hangs on the cross and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you have that kind of gear ratio in your attitude? I don't. Like my, 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 my range is like right here. Whatever it is, it's, like it's, it's typically over the top. You can check in with my family. It's too loud, it's too funny, it's too angry, it's too something. Just no mid-range. If I'm not doing anything too something, he must be sick. <laughs> but it is the Christ who calls us to, to put on whatever attribute is best suited for the moment. Therefore, this is not just strategy, there's a, a power that is demanded by the gospel to be working in me to make it happen. Let's look at this final passage from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And it actually is verses 10 through 13. It says, these things God has revealed to us through his spirit. 
For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of a person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of God, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this, not in words taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Not only must we have Christ as the focus, not only do we need the power of the gospel as the dunamis, not only must we have the Lord's glory as the overriding purpose in all of our relationships, but we need the Holy Spirit as our compass. And the reason we need him as our compass is this. The Holy Spirit helps us to navigate relationships in an ever-changing cultural landscape. There are things that people get stuck on and harp on today that weren't even a conversation five years ago, that weren't even an issue 10 years ago, that weren't even on the radar 20 years ago. But it is the Holy Spirit and his wisdom working within us that constantly helps us to connect the dots between what does gospel look like, what does love look like, what does glorifying God look like in this particular scenario. So there is no handbook other than your Bible that I'm going to ask you to reference to figure out how to work through choppy relationships. The Bible speaks and it is perpetually relevant, but it also becomes perpetually real time through the ministry of the Holy Spirit serving as our compass. I use the word compass intentionally because what does a compass do? It points us to true north. I'll be the first to admit that in a sticky situation, the first thing that needs to get managed is my thoughts and my default settings and my emotions. And I need something to say, wait a minute, what's true north? Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you think, regardless of your past experience, regardless of what you think it owed, what is true north? I have to have the Holy Spirit at work within me to remind me of true north. But what else does the Holy Spirit have to do? According to Jesus, he would remind us of the things that he taught. Therefore, the Holy Spirit provides me with a pointing toward true north, but also fills me in on what is true knowledge. Like, what is the real deal? In relationships, we often are responding to ancillary surface details and not what is truly there. There are people who we have grown to despise, not realizing that all their attitudes emanate not from them hating us, but from them being hurt by us in some time in the past. But the Holy Spirit can help us to see that, points us to true north, gives us true knowledge, but he also gives us an incredible sense of self-awareness and is constantly convicting us and reminding us of our own true need. I want to caution you that when you are at your angriest in a relationship, that there is more than likely something of that individual that is actually reflected in you. The Holy Spirit not only provides true north as a compass, but true knowledge, but also true need. And it is only by the Holy Spirit's ministry that I can operate in contrast to my true nature. Has anybody in here ever had their salvation confirmed by the fact that the Lord calls you to act radically different than you used to? You were like, man, I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. And other people in the car are like, why do you have your hands up? You know, he was like, nah, I just got reminded of something. You know, there's a song on the radio and I just remembered that I'm truly saved. Or maybe you saw something outside the window or maybe somebody cut you off in traffic and there was a time when you would just lay on the horn and just say, forget it, I'll pay this deductible. (laughs) Boom, you know. (laughs) Lord, I'm saved. (laughs) I'm saved. 
I'm saved. Right? Anybody been reminded of that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Holy Spirit's ministry is, is a great one to help us navigate relationships in an ever-changing cultural landscape, giving us that true contrast to ourselves. So what of all this? Um, how is this and why is this conversation unique to the faith? Well, it is my contention that unless you have placed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, number one, there ain't no Holy Spirit occupying you to give you that sense of true north. It's not just human conscience because your human conscience is only gonna reinforce your default setting or some kind of social Darwinism. What is survival of the fittest? What do I have to adapt to and do this moment to be the most comfortable and excel on my own terms? We need the Holy Ghost living inside of us and the Bible says that that Holy Spirit is only provided to those who have placed faith in Christ and we are sealed by him until the day of redemption and God is actively working on us through him. We need the power of the gospel. It is counterintuitive in the way that the believer is called to do many relationships. The whole life of Christ is counterintuitive. The one who is on top coming to serve and be the one who is on the bottom. That counterintuitive power, that isn't just some kind of masochism. It isn't some technique. There has to be something radically and powerfully working within us. And that is the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ actively gripping us and the Holy Spirit pointing us back to and testifying of his example. You are of his type. You are, not no, you are no longer like the world. I don't care how nasty your world is. It is, it is the, the, our response to the gospel where the gospel isn't just a, some words that we agree to, but it is an actual power that begins to grip our life and radically change and overcome and really sanctify, change appetites, change ideas, and constantly remind us of why I am valuable. Not because I run faster or because I'm prettier or because I can purchase more. It takes the gospel and its constant vibration in my heart to remind me of why I am valuable when I'm feeling more valuable than I ought to and when I'm feeling less valuable than I ought to. The gospel has to be at work within my life. And minus, minus the, 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 the coming to Christ and laying down one's life, this is a foreign language. And you will leave here and try to appropriate techniques of harmonious relationship. And when you get done, you will be lifted up in pride because you will say, I did it, which is the opposite of the gospel. So why do we need the gospel? Because it is sin itself that is the source of this great pride and division in all of our relationships that makes us look at people of different color, different countries, different genders, and different types, and different ages, and somehow suggest I'm better than or I deserve more than. It is sin and sin alone that infuses all of that in our lives. And if you're feeling uncomfortable in this moment, that's perfectly okay. Because that's the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. It is not here to make us comfortable. It is here to conform us to the image of Christ. As a final point of application, I'd like to offer this. I'd love for you to, to identify a relationship that you have right now that is incredibly messy. Maybe you don't have to start with the, the biggest one, 
Maybe you ain't ready for that. You'll be ready for that by the time we get to the end of 1 Corinthians. But maybe you have a relationship. Not maybe. I want all of us to think about a relationship that is messy in our lives. And that relationship is a result of unnecessary division. There is a division between you and that individual. And I would like for you to do two things very simply. I would like for you to pray and act. I would like for you to pray and ask the Lord to reveal to you which of these four pieces of godly wisdom is missing from the way you're operating in that relationship. And then I'd like for you to take action toward that person. I'd like you to take the initiative, not wait, not pray that the the Lord would drag them to your house and make them ring the doorbell with their heart in their hand and a box of tissue saying, do you want to make up? I want to talk to you about something. I want you to pray, and I want you to act. And I want you to be very careful. Please don't show up at somebody's house like this. I'm here because my pastor says I have to be, and I want to apply the gospel to you right now. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. But, but pray that the Lord would work on you, would, would, would reveal to you what that relationship is missing. Pray that the Lord will reveal how you need to be a steward of of, of that relationship and what you need to do to tear down that division, to dissolve that division. Would you do that with me? Man, so we can have some testimonies of repaired relationships in this place. That's that's what I would love for us to do from from an application perspective. Also, as our... um, I'd like to give opportunity for also anybody who just needs prayer concerning any of your relationships, whether the person that you're thinking about or concerned about is, is, is here with you or not, is, is totally irrelevant. The prayer team is kind of making their way to the edges. And uh, I'd like you to go there. You say, you know, Lord, I, search me, show me where where my relationships are missing some of the pieces, some of that gospel wisdom that I need. I'll lead us in prayer and then you guys can continue where you are or with the folks that are at the walls. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're thankful to you today for the fact that our relationship with you was more messy and broken than anything you could possibly ever, ever, ever imagine. But yet you took the initiative, stepped into our mess, blew it up with the power of the gospel and brought us close. And you brought us close, Heavenly Father. You brought us close knowing that we weren't fully clean. We weren't fully perfect. We didn't have all the answers. We didn't have it all together, but you still called us your children. I pray, oh God, that that same loving reach, that same initiative of love to repair the divide between us and you, pray, oh God, that it would be effectual in us, in our relationships with the members of the body and even those outside. Allow this church, oh God, in the truest and most practical sense to display the reconciling hope of the gospel in relationships. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.